Today's episode is extremely exciting. I'm here with my dear friend Philip Opperman, who is working at the Shark Conservancy. We recorded this about a year ago when I was in Moheli Comoros, and he was there in South Africa. So excuse us if there's any little noises and things in the background. He was actually in the lab. But we got plenty of fantastic information for you guys if you want to get involved in helping protect sharks, even if you're not a marine biologist. So learn from someone who has been there, done that, and is now working every day to protect our oceans. We're going to be covering everything from how to get into shark conservancy there, what kind of volunteering they do, how much does it cost, and in general, what the tagging is and what information they're finding. I also learned probably my favorite fun fact ever, and it has to do with my favorite animal, the killer whale, orca, and livers. So you're gonna have to stay tuned for this episode to find out what that is about. As always, if you wanna get in touch with me, please feel free to check out my website, oceanpancake.com, or find me on Instagram, vegandivercat. Love hearing from you guys. And if you have anyone you wish I interview or talk to, let me know there. Every day, there's a new news story about the crisis facing our ocean, whether it's the plastic issue, overfishing, pollution. If the oceans die, we die. Fortunately, we have plenty of environmental activists, marine conservationists, and eco-warriors who are out there every day fighting to protect our oceans and our Earth. On the Ocean Pancake podcast, we're going to be hearing from some of them about how to decrease our environmental footprint, go plastic-free, participate in ocean conservation, cleanups, and even maybe some marine science. So welcome to the Ocean Pancake Podcast, where the goal is sustainability and living a turquoise life. My name is Kat Andreskova, and I'm your host today. Let's get into this week's episode. So welcome to the Ocean Pancake Podcast. And today we have a very exciting guest, which is Philip Opperman. Is that correct? I'm sorry. I should have checked how to pronounce that before. Um, (laughs) The way I kind of got to know Philip is pretty funny. He's the person who had the job I'm working at now in the Comoros before me. And um, he kind of offered to answer any of the questions I had about um, working as a scuba diving instructor here. So we started chatting and turns out Philip is very cool and is currently working on shark conservation in South Africa. So maybe next year I'll be following him there. So welcome Philip to the podcast. Thank you. Tell me a little bit about yourself. How did you kind of start on this ocean journey? How did you fall in love with the ocean? Oh, that was a rough start to be honest. I'm from Germany originally and growing up in Germany, you're very far away from the ocean unless you really live up north. You know, I didn't. So um, it was a rough start in terms of I didn't really like the ocean, especially when I was a kid. Um, I thought it was salty. My eyes were burning all the times. I couldn't see underwater. I wasn't a particularly good swimmer for the longest time. But I started traveling when I was 23. And just because of a friend of mine asked me if I wanted to join him for a dive course, I did. And even after diving, I didn't exactly fall in love right away. Um, it took me a while to really embrace my passion for the ocean. And that came with more comfort um, and really understanding what I was doing underwater and also becoming a better swimmer. And I think most importantly, understanding what 
you know the ocean is like and and how important it is and really understanding how beautiful it is but i needed to learn that it didn't just occur like with other people unfortunately well that's still very impressive how long between getting your open water and then getting your instructor course seven years oh, i'd say seven years i mean when, when i did my open water course i did uh, about maybe 10 dives before I started traveling properly. And when I said traveling, I mean with a backpack and leaving for months and months. And it's only then that I really started to, to get into it. So I did my advanced open water in Egypt in between mm-hmm. and it was beautiful, but I was still not really understanding what I was doing underwater. Nobody really explained a lot to me. I guess I was very lucky with my instructors. And ah, my mask was always fogging up because I didn't have my own one. And, you know, the little things that makes you, make you really uncomfortable when you're in the water. And it's only when I had my own gear that I started to really appreciate and understand what I was doing. And then really start loving what I was doing in the water. Yeah, so it wow. took seven years. Well, at least you got to the point where now you can be the type of instructor which can help people reach that comfort a lot faster than you yeah, experience I, yourself. <laughs> I agree. I think that this experience really helped me grow as an instructor really understanding what different issues people might have with it and not assuming that people will be fine and I think a part of being an instructor is also to coach people and to coach them maybe even after their courses and respond to them very in a more sensitive manner to problems that they might have and stuff like that. Oh for sure I'm still friends with many of my students so it's uh, nice to continue that relationship. So you got your open water where did you say? didn't catch that. Oh, I got it in Thailand. Pretty Thailand? classic in Koh Tao. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you're one of the Koh Tao divers. And then I'm one of those ones. Yeah. In Egypt. Uh, and where, where are your other ones? Um, I did my rescue diver again in Thailand. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I've been back and forth. I even worked in Thailand for a season as an instructor just because it's really cheap. And when you're a backpacker, you often just get to Thailand, I guess. Um, a, around where did you get oh, your the, certification in Australia? Yeah, yeah, that was in Tweed, uh, close to Brisbane, and the name of the dive shop was Tweed Sea Sports. Ah, uh, yeah, and it's a really great place. I loved it there, and I learned a lot from from Peter, who was my course director by the time. And then what? I did my instructor in Bali. Uh, okay, yeah, I was wondering if you're doing your instructor in Brisbane as well, because then we would have potentially been on the same IDC. Kind of. Oh, no. No, I didn't body that. <laughs> so you've traveled oh. all over the world, essentially, as a scuba diving instructor. But when did you start getting more interested in the conservation aspect? Yeah, I think that even started before I became an instructor. I think that started when I was starting to travel around and get to really remote places and noticed that even in the most remotest places, I would find trash along the beaches. Mm-hmm. And I would ask myself, well, how does it get there? Who's responsible? And most importantly, what can I do on my end? And it started really slow with little changes in my own behavior in terms of consumption, um, especially of, you know, plastic, um, but also, I guess, water, like really all resources that you have available, especially when you travel. Um, And then at some points, I... I started working in the Comoros and I was pulled into it because (laughs) you work really closely, as you know, you work really closely with the community and you work really closely with the park rangers. 
and um, it sparked my interest. And I always kind of wanted to work in that field, but I didn't really know how to make it work, um, especially given the fact, the fact that I'm not a marine biologist, I am not a scientist, I don't have any background in ecology um, or yeah, management of ecology whatsoever. Um, so it was pure luck that I found a place online where I could work in conservation as like my first little playground where I could get a little bit of an idea of what it would look like. And that was, um, yeah, after the Comoros, I decided that I wanted to see if I can find a job somewhere else. And I found this place here in South Africa. Oh, that's so fantastic. I know a lot of people who are listening aren't necessarily marine biologists or even scuba diving instructors or, you know, qualified in the typical way uh, to, to be an ocean conservation activist. But, um, you know, it's, it's good to hear from people like you who, you know, didn't have those standard qualifications and could still find um, work in conservation mm. just shows that, you know, if you're interested, you can find a way. Um, so now, yeah. where do you work? Please share with everyone. So now, <laughs> now I work for the South African Shark Conservancy, um, which is a research lab close to Cape Town, about one and a half hours away, in a very charming little place called Hermanus. Mm-hmm. Um, it's quite interesting in terms of its location, because um, we have about 62 different species of sharks, rays, and skates here in this area, which wow. is a very, very high diversity of sharks. And another very interesting fact is that we are pretty much a stone throw away from Hanspai. And Hanspai, most people might have heard of in context of white shark cage diving. Yes. Which yes. is a very, very big thing here in South Africa. So we've got all the cage dive operators pretty much, yeah, in front of our, um, on the opposite side of our bay. Oh, it's wow. a very interesting spot. So... I started working about five months ago. Now, here's the catch. When you want to work in conservation and you don't have any background whatsoever, who would want to hire you and why? And in my case, it is, I was quite lucky because um, I found somebody who would understand that communication, social media, brands, marketing, like all these things are a very crucial part of conservation nowadays you can't do conservation without communicating what you do um, if you want to generate money um, it's the only way forward if you want to find people who support you it's the only way forward and yeah I started working here with my background in marketing communication so this is what I did before in the real world <laughs> and what the catch is the catch is that I'm actually I haven't been paid for the first time right so you do a lot of volunteer work um, in order to get your foot into the door and then you hope that maybe one day it might pay off which in my case it did lucky that I was. Oh, congrats that's amazing thank you but yeah I mean it's a lot of it's a lot of work and it's definitely sacrifice that you need to do and in this particular case it's mostly financial sacrifice so what does your um, typical day-to-day life look like working um, at the Shark Conservancy? So um, I probably have to explain how we work and how we finance ourselves. I think that's probably the most important Excellent. thing. 
So what we do is that we train interns uh, and volunteers, um, mostly interns that study marine science or anything related. And it's early career scientists who just want to get some experience in the field and they want to get hands-on experience with sharks, working with sharks every single day. They come here um, for usually between seven and nine weeks to get trained. That's just what a practical semester would look like for them. And yeah, we bring them out into the field and do a lot of really interesting research. Um, research on the ecology of sharks, habitats, diversity. Most of the field work that we do, we try to get our hands on as many sharks as we can to tag them, mm -hmm. um, get their measurements, as we call it, morphometrics, uh, and genetic samples from our sharks so that we can get a better idea of the distribution here in this area. So we go fishing, we do long lining, um, we actually go snorkeling pretty much every day here in the house reef and just grab the sharks by hand. Now a lot of people would ask, wait, what? <laughs> are, you, are you crazy? Um, we're talking mostly about cat sharks. Those are endemic to South Africa. Very cute little ones um, that don't necessarily grow larger than maybe, well, the larger pajama sharks, maybe a meter but those aren't the ones that we catch by hand, but the cat sharks, probably 30 centimeters, 35 most of the times. Um, yeah, catch them. Um, we have a student here who runs behavioral ex experiments on the sharks, so also post-grad students can come here um, and collect data for whatever project they have. And this is mostly how we finance ourselves. So these students, these interns and volunteers who come here, they pay us to be able to get this um, skill development and training. So of course, there's a lot of theory, a lot of workshops, um, and it covers pretty much everything from um, shark physiology up until like the role of sharks in coastal marine ecosystems. Oh, wow. It's a very large range of, yeah, we have a big curriculum here. Yeah. Um, volunteers can come, so pe even people with absolutely no experience can come. We have a slightly different schedule for them, but they get out in the field just as much, and they have amazing experiences with the sharks that we have here around. And now people ask, well, this is volunteering. Why should I pay for volunteering? The simple answer is that a research facility like ours um, needs to cover the operational costs, right? So going out on a boat is expensive. Very expensive. Um, driving around, driving around with the car is expensive. Getting, um, yeah, all the research material that we need, for instance, spaghetti tags, or on the more pricey end of the scale, um, acoustic tags. This is really expensive stuff. Yeah, you need receivers, you need um, people who run this whole show. Um, you have research facilities that need to be paid, like all of these costs, as you can imagine, they need to be covered. And this is why our volunteers and interns are so much appreciated when they come here. They can be a, a really crucial part of the research operation and they also finance the whole thing. So that's why we're very, very happy to have so many interns and volunteers here. Yeah, so basically any level person could come and, um, well, apply to be an intern there or a volunteer. So you have the very beginning, beginning, uh, no experience, then you have the people at university doing it as part of their university curriculum, and then as well the post-grad uh, uh, PhD jobs. Yeah? Those yeah, exactly. We, yeah, we even had uh, a mother with her underage um, 
daughter here the other day, which is quite cool. So if oh. you're not 18, not a problem. You can still come, but you need, you know, one grown up with you. Mm -hmm. You can come here and do a two week, four week, whatever long you want to stay here volunteering program, which is pretty cool. Oh, wow. So that's that what sounds we, really great. Yeah. That's what we offer for people who want to spend a bit more time also ask teachers and educators who want to bring their classes here and they can come here and do a boot camp we call it a boot camp so you can stay for a day or for four days and um, you will have a very cool schedule of different field activities um, paired up with a lot of like classes and um, yeah, different things that we do for kids so outreach is really important education is really important mm -hmm. for us and we do that with local kids we also had a group of 25 kids from la reunion coming here oh wow um, a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> yeah, they stayed for four days and they got the full shark package and even in a dissection of shark the things that we do here for education purposes that's very cool very cool so i might have to actually apply for volunteering next year to come and check it out <laughs> yes. what you guys do um, if if I were to come, what what would I expect to be doing on a day-to-day -day basis? What time do you wake up? What do you eat for food? Do people cook for you or do you cook for yourself? What kind of accommodation do you live in or is it very yeah. So we have an intern and volunteer house, which is um, about 10 minutes away from here by car. Um, and we wake up early. Our days start really early. So we try to be in the office at around 7.15. Oh, wow. That is early. Yeah. Um, and then we get a couple of samples um, out, of the, out of the water here. We make sure that the sharks that we keep in our tanks are fine. Um, we get environmental data to see, you know, um, how it correlates with our um, shark sightings and all the other data that we're collecting. Um, and then we have different field activities that we do. So one I already mentioned, so it might be that you would just jump into the reef that we have right in front of our house, right in front of the shark lab, we have the ocean. We would jump in, snorkel, try to collect uh, sharks. Um, or you might do some shore fishing, um, usually with a hand rod um, or a hand line. We would do marine debris data collection. So you would go to the beach. Um, we have a very specific way of getting data and finding out how many um, or how much plastic you can find on the beaches. Probably something that you might even think about doing on your own. We'll have to talk yeah. that separately. <laughs> yeah. well, I'm, I'm always looking for new and better uh, methods. Currently, the methods here are about zero. So anything would be great to know uh, in addition. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, let's talk. Um, what else? We go to the estuaries. We try to um, get data um, from there. So it's not only shark related. So mm -hmm. it's, it's not every day that you might lay a hand on, you, on any sharks that we have here, but um, everything that has to do with it, um, all the marine, environmental, and yeah, other data that we can collect here are essential for, for what we do. Cool. Uh, and what about the great whites? So that's obviously the big uh, shark that everyone knows about in South Africa, especially. Do you guys get to yes. work with them at all? 
Look, um, we do something that we call white shark monitoring. Mm -hmm. So what we do is that we send interns and volunteers on the boats of the tour operators, and then you can basically do the same thing as a tourist. Um, plus, you would write down like all the important things, um, like how many people were on the boat, and most importantly, is the tour operator doing his job properly? Mm -hmm. Is he handling the animal how he's supposed to handle them? Great white shark tours are probably the most restricted and um, yeah, thought after water activity in all South Africa, if not in the world. So, so there are so many regulations that you'd have to adhere with and we just want to make sure that people do that. Um, so we send our little spy spies <laughs> onto the boats and, and monitor their activities. So yes, you would definitely get to see white sharks. Unless we have orcas, and then you don't get to see anything for weeks. What, what we do you mean? Uh, no, we get, we get orcas here in the bay sometimes. It's rare, but we do. Mm -hmm. um, I actually have seen them a couple of months ago. The problem with the orcas, as beautiful as they are, first of all, they're so skittish, you barely get to see them. So it's mm -hmm. not a good trade-off. <laughs> Second of all, orcas predate on white sharks. Oh, really? So there are a lot of white shark livers. Yeah, yeah. There are a lot of white shark livers. I mean, the liver makes a large portion of uh, a shark's body weight. And um, in the case of white sharks, the liver is huge. So what orcas do, they slice up the white shark and just grab the liver and let the rest of the shark go. And we know that because we have seen white sharks stranded on beaches and um, we, have, we have seen men. Well, not we here, but other people have seen predating in the wild. So that happens. So you don't get to see any white sharks for a long time when the orcas get around, which is a pretty bad blow for the for white shark industry. But wow, that's that's a piece of new information. So shark livers make up a huge part of their body weight, and they're what killer whales like eating. Killer whales are eating them. Yes. Yeah, all the important nutrients, they all are in the liver. So they don't need more than in the liver. How much would a orca have to eat? Like, would orcas, like a, a pod of orcas, or what are they called, a fa family? Yeah, pod. Mm -hmm. a, a pod, pod of, of orcas. orcas. Let's say there is five of them. Would they have to attack several great whites to get enough liver for everyone? Or is it like one liver per orca, do you think? Or is it just like a treat? Is it like us going to a fancy restaurant? What do you, what do you think the <laughs> equivalent is? Yeah, unfortunately, we don't have enough data to really um, hypothesize about like how many white sharks they would need to kill. We barely have enough information on the white shark distribution as it is. Mm. Um, it's extremely hard um, and extremely expensive to monitor white sharks and mm -hmm distribution so for this you need satellite tags and satellite tags are extremely expensive how so much are we, we looking for satellite tags oh we're looking about well if if it's the tag plus the satellite time uh, i think on the lower end of the spectrum we start with about twenty five thousand dollars <laughs> yeah because you have to consider not only the tag but also the satellite um, of course yeah, tracking time it's it's unfortunately something that I mean I would love to jam, you know, two hundred satellite texts into the white sharks that we see, <laughs> but it's just <laughs> simply. See awesome. uh, yeah. So if anyone who has a lot yeah, of money no, really... uh, listening to this, please uh, invest into 
satellite tagging for great white sharks so we can find out how many um, are killed by orcas for their livers. Yes. <laughs> Although, um, do, do you remember when that shark um, tag, th there was, I don't know if it was a satellite or what type of tag it was, but it, it was found to have like descended really into a yes, depth. Yes, yes. Yeah, um, I've seen that. This, is, this was one of the first documentaries that was made on the issue and one of the first clues that scientists had that would indicate that orcas would actually predate, predate on, um, on white sharks. Yeah. So for people who haven't um, heard or seen it, could you, with your slightly more expert opinion on this topic, uh, kind of tell <laughs> us what happened in the... Yeah, what happened is that researchers had tagged um, a white shark and the distribution of a white shark, um, spatial distribution, was um, very clear and very, it, it followed a pattern, right? A very specific mm -hmm. pattern. So white sharks are, are famous for migrating. They can migrate thousands of kilometers. And the specific white shark um, was all of a sudden dropping down. So those, uh, those satellite tags are quite powerful. So they can even tell you the depth of the shark. Wow. And now the depth profile all of a sudden changed to a very, very um, deep um, dive, right? And people mm -hmm. were wondering, well, what is the shark doing in this depth? Um, they're not known to be going down that deep. And what happened um, is also that those tags were collecting information on the temperature of the shark. Now, both the depth and the temperature changed drastically. And people were wondering like what happened to the shark. So it must have been killed, but nobody really knew what made it, you know, die, what killed it. Yeah. <laughs> so um, they tried to follow the pathway of the shark and found out that there's a hotspot. So a place where a lot of um, ocean life would be blooming, especially cetaceans. So especially dolphins, um, whales, and in this case, orcas were spending a lot of time in this area. So they hypothesized that it might have been orcas predating on, on the white sharks because they have been known to go to the depth limits and they have been known to have those body temperatures. And yeah, this is how they kind of slowly put one to one or one and one together and got an idea. Wow. Well, so in reality, the great white shark is not the most apex predator. It is a uh, no, the not orca. at all. Orcas are, yeah, for sure. Uh, orcas are are probably my favorite animals, and it's my biggest dream in the world to see them. Um, so yeah, Which we'll probably can, have to yeah. definitely come there. <laughs> yeah, go to Norway. They do actually. They offer snorkeling with orcas in Norway. It sounds cold. <laughs> It's very cold. You do that in the winter time, end of January until the mid of February. Um, it's first a place called Andenes on the Lofoten in Norway. And it's very cool because the orcas there are considered rather safe because they're feeding on herring and herring exclusively. So they're not okay. really interested in any larger animals, but certainly not on the liver. Yeah, well, I've I've been thinking about it a lot and while on one hand I definitely believe that you know with with the with the killings that have happened in SeaWorld and um, you know in the confined confined pools 
um, that has been really extreme circumstances of the orcas and they don't attack humans. But at the same time, I think being in the water with such a, you know, magnificent predator would terrify me. So knowing that they only eat herring does kind of... <laughs> um, it helps, right? Some of the fear, yeah. yeah. It's a different story in Mexico. In, in Cabo, they dive often, free dive. Um, they see a lot of whales there and every once in a while orcas and they jump in the water and swim with them and it's never been a problem. And there haven't been any known attacks to humans outside of well any fatal attacks outside of the sea world anyway yeah no not a single one but still you know um they are beautiful incredible creatures but they're huge and powerful and when you put us in the yeah. water with them we're the fish out of water in that scenario you know uh, absolutely uh, yeah. For any one of you guys who's gone diving or free diving you know that um even with your fins and all your specialized equipment there is uh basically no no way to catch up to an <laughs> to a turtle. Oh no, you're doomed. <laughs> you're really just living the dream, aren't you? Trying. But you know, there's downsides to everything and you sacrifice a lot. I mean I sacrificed my professional career in marketing. I sacrificed my friendships and relationships and all of that in order for me to do what I'm doing now. But that sounds so sad <laughs> no it's not at all i'm actually quite happy i'm doing it i'm just saying that everything comes with a price and everyone's always thinking about the positives but nobody really wants to mention the negatives i think it's important to mention that to be aware that you know you can't have it all all the time that's true so the positives of course of uh, working with sharks and various conservation work is you know, being able to see the difference you're making and then the research and outreach. And for you especially, you, you've had so many people around there um, that, you know, must be leaving inspired or w what is the best part for you, I guess, uh, in working in conservation? Look, I think one of the smallest parts, but for me the best parts, is when you get people... Um, either tourists or locals who come and visit the shark lab because we do lab tours. And since we have a couple of tanks here and we keep sharks in the tanks for various reasons, um, we can show them the sharks and we can ask them questions. They can ask us questions. We can understand people's fear better and people can understand why they shouldn't be fearing sharks. Mm -hmm. And even if it's just, you know, a little family coming here um, every week, it's the best feeling if you're able to interact with people and try to educate them on, on a one-to-one -one basis um, because this is where you see the change happening. You don't necessarily see the change happening um, in, in other ways, but this is something that you see on a very personal scale. Um, what we also do is that we come to schools and we have Meg here, the founding director of um, the South African Shark Conservancy, Megan McCord. She's a really, really good, <laughs> good scientist, good person, good businesswoman. She really knows um, how to deal. Like she has a, uh, she has a very concrete vision of what she wants to achieve. And yeah, she goes to schools and educates little kids and explains, yeah, to them why they shouldn't fear sharks and why sharks are actually so important for us. And our survival. And, and, and me then, personally, I just love to be in the water. 
So that was all for today. That was me and Philip talking all about Shark Conservancy and his experiences. As per usual, uh, the podcast went a little long because we just love chatting. So stay tuned for next week episode, which is going to be the part two, where Philip and I are talking about investing into your future. University and volunteering, how are they similar? How are they different? How to stand out if you want to find a job in conservation? And just a bit more uh, chatting about our experiences and uh, some of the good parts and of course the downsides of working in conservation so so stay tuned give this podcast a like subscribe all of that jazz um love hearing from you guys so yeah see you next week bye